Hello, I'm Rena Grobe. And I'm Madvi Romani. And this is Misinformed, a show where we'll be talking about our latest internet obsessions. So Rena, what did you get obsessed with this week? So on January 19th, 2021, Navalny, who is a lawyer and opposition leader in Russia and a very harsh critic of Putin, released a two-hour-long expose on Putin. You will recognize Navalny's name. He was poisoned in Russia, flown to Germany, specifically to Berlin, where he was treated at the Charité. Since he has returned to Russia, and upon his arrival in Russia, well, first of all, his plane was supposed to land at one airport, but then was last minute rerouted to a different one. And at customs, he was then arrested by the Russian police and taken to jail. And this video was actually released on YouTube two or three days into his jail sentence. It has 112 million views on YouTube so far at the point of recording. It's an unbelievable watch. Yeah, so this video centers on a big palace that apparently Putin has been building for the last, I don't know, I think this project stretches back to 2006. Just to put it into perspective, this is the largest residential building in Russia. The actual building is 17,691 square meters. And then it's surrounded by 7,000 hectares of territory, including forests, mountains, which is about 70 million square meters. The palace, Putin's palace, consists of oyster farms, an indoor hockey rink, a tea house or a guest house that is 2,500 square meters and is reached by an 80 meter bridge. It has a church, weirdly. It has a 2,500 meter greenhouse. It has loads of rare trees which don't really thrive in this area. It has about, I think, four vineries in different places, or four vineyards and wineries. It has a tasting room, which is just pure glass that overlooks the sea that's built into a cliff. It's got underground tunnels. It's got a private beach that you can reach via underground tunnel because the palace is a bit elevated. It's astounding, in short. It's actually three times as big as the nearest village. That's mind-boggling. Also, it's a no-fly zone, so you can't fly over it. Also, if you want to pass by on the boat, because it's obviously on the shore, you have to call and get permission, and even then, you have to stay a mile away from the coast. In the Navalny video, they actually call the local Coast Guard and ask for permission, claiming they're just like tourists or fishermen or something, and try to get some information or try to see what the official reason is that they can't go closer than a mile to the shore. And the evasive maneuvers of this woman are unbelievable. Also, I'm pretty sure that she doesn't really know. She's just... I mean, she's just sitting in the office and she's been told, you're not supposed to give permission to anybody who wants to fish or swim or anything in this area. But what's really amazing is, so in order to get this footage for this territory, which is the most protected territory ever, it's got its own border checkpoint, All these workers are working there. None of them are allowed to take in any phones with any cameras. All cars are searched. They glove compartments with mirror. Like you said, it's a no-fly zone. But they kind of go in through various different ways on a dinghy, Navalny's team, and then they go in with a drone somehow. 
And a lot of construction workers, I think, spoke to them because they were really disillusioned by the whole project. So what happened is this project was actually finished quite some years ago, I think 2016. And then they had a problem with the ventilation and humidity, and there was a mold problem. So then what they did is they just took everything out, all this marble, all this stuff, and started all over again. Meanwhile, all the workers are living in these trailers and working there. Obviously, the key thing about this palace is Putin is on a salary of about, I don't know, 100,000 a year. And all of this has been built off the entire rape of Russian resources and everything that belongs to Russia, the timber, the oil, the gas, all its natural resources, all the tax. This video shows that Putin has had a long history of bribery and corruption that has brought him all the way to the top and has made him well, some people say that he's the richest man in the world. Nobody really knows. So yeah, I tried to look this up and the figures on how much Putin is worth vary dramatically. So some estimates say he's worth 70 billion, whereas other people estimate his fortune to be 200 billion. It's all kept very under lock and key, so we have no way of knowing, but he's definitely very, very rich. In fact, he posted these workout videos and John Oliver notes that the sweatsuit he's wearing to work out is worth $3,000. His daughter, who is an acrobat, basically, and an academic, she's worth $2 billion. So clearly he is very, very, very corrupt, and he's a billionaire, a multi-billionaire, and he is in charge of a massive, massive territory and so many resources and so many people. It's an autocracy. He's really exploited it. And Navalny has been for years, first on his blog, and then he turned his blog into a publishing house or a media company, has been exposing this kind of corruption that is rampant in Russia. In fact, while researching this episode, I came across this great bit of information about Peter the Great. When he was trying to turn feudal agrarian Russia into a modern state, he encountered a major source of friction inside the system which was corruption. It didn't just affect the finances, it affected the whole basic efficiency of the system. And bribery and embezzlement were traditional in Russian public life. But Navalny first got interested in the topic in 2007, when he decided to acquire some stock in some of Russia's big state companies, which are like Gazprom, Transneft, which is oil and gas, because commodity prices were going up. This is pretty safe stuff. And you get pretty good dividends. But he noticed that the companies, despite the fact that the commodity prices were going up and Russia has like a lot of natural resources, they weren't really paying their shareholders many dividends. And so he looked into it a bit because Russia also does have brilliant, amazing record keeping too. It's very bureaucratic on one hand and then very corrupt on the other hand. So you can trace a lot of the corruption, which is really amazing. And he realized that Transneft donated $300 million to a charity in 2007 alone. He was like, hey, what is this charity? You need to disclose this information to shareholders. And they said, no, we don't actually. And then he took them to court. A police officer investigated. But of course, the police officer just made one phone call, was told nothing, then left it and left it. But Navalny being Navalny just pushed it and pushed it. And it went on and on to court. And then he made this blog. And because of all of the paperwork available, people can actually look at loads of documents and where contracts are being offered, where money is going, labyrinthine, like shell companies, who owns what, and they can really figure out, you know, where the corruption is so that people are pointing out the fact that, I don't know, 
one small mayor in one town bought 30 massive Mercedes. Like, why does he need that? And his website actually got a lot of good results because a lot of contracts, a lot of these things were kind of cancelled due to public outrage. And now Navalny has really stepped on Putin's toes because he just come right at his major project, which is this massive palace because Putin is pure greed. It's greed taken to the extreme. And what's really funny about this in a uniquely Russian way, I always feel, is that Putin, he's built this massive palace and he's still building it and he's putting billions and billions and billions and billions into it. But he's never going to be able to really live there because it's a secret, right? And now one of his oligarch friends released a statement after the Navalny video was released saying, actually, that was his and he wanted to turn it into a part hotels or something ludicrous like that. But the amount of disinformation, misinformation around this in Russia is incredible. I watched a 60-minute interview, the American TV program with Navalny back in 2017, when there was elections in Russia. Because like Putin has been in power in Russia since 1999. The Russian constitution states that a president can only be in power for two consecutive terms, but it does not limit how often he can be in power. So... Putin ran for two terms, then he had a puppet in that place, and during that time he took the prime minister role, and now he's back to being president. And when Navalny challenged him on this, he describes these rallies he would hold where he was literally like a couple days before doing this primetime American TV show interview, he had just been arrested, and they showed this footage of him basically just speaking on a stage, being arrested. And like, they're quite brutal with him. But yeah, watching this, I actually think I developed a little bit of a crush on Navalny. I love how much he cares and how passionate he is, and he also looks very dashing his button-up shirt. Also, I am terrified of Putin. Everyone is, and that's what's really special about Navalny, because he was poisoned by Novichok, the nerve agent, and almost died. And nobody, I mean, Putin does this regularly, he just kills his opponents. But nobody really thought that he would return to Russia, which is either a great act of courage or stupidity. But anyway, it was not expected. I think it was both a great act of courage and stupidity. Would he be taken seriously if he stayed abroad? Well, that's the thing. It's very interesting because he's very smart at politics. And he knows that in order to be an opposition leader for Russia, he needs to be in Russia and he cannot be seen as being scared to go back. And he's kind of a nationalist too. He has very strong nationalist feelings. He said something very interesting. Part of his appeal, I think, to the Russian people is his rejection of Russian liberalism. And he sees this as out of touch. The country is very conservative, actually. He can be seen advocating for the repatriation of illegals. And in his YouTube videos, while the footage shows people of Asian appearance moving through the airport and stuff like this, he said something really interesting there. He said, there's a huge number of questions that we should be discussing and not handing them over to nationalists. Migration, for example, is a major issue in Russia. And Russia has the most immigrants in the world after the US. Because a lot of people come from former Soviet republics like Tajikistan, and a lot of them are undocumented, and I think the number is somewhere between 7 million and 12 million. He says, when we make these questions taboo and don't discuss them at all, we hand over this extremely important agenda to the radicals. So I think he is quite conservative and nationalist, but he also kind of knows his audience. And I wonder how much of that is politics, how much of that was him. But it's funny, when we saw him sentencing court, he was in a hoodie, and then he was drawing these little shapes of love hearts to his wife, Yulia. 
he does have something quite charming and funny. When you watch his videos, it's not dry. He speaks really fast. He's giving a lot of dry information. But he has got this humor and he's kind of delighted by the whole thing. And I think that's part of it. I don't know if he's genuinely not scared, but somebody who's not scared of Putin is very rare. He's also incredibly charismatic. You like sort of are listening to him and it's not easy to forget he's talking about something super serious. He just like really draws you in and he, yeah, he's kind of like puckish thing to him. And so after a while, you're just like, yeah, it's a little complicated to, as a not Russian speaker, you have to read along. So it takes a lot of focus and attention, but he's entertaining and you want to watch him. Watching the Russians and the way the Russian state operates it is very entertaining. I've read a couple of books on it. One is Nothing is True and Everything is Possible, where a journalist just describes his time in the 90s in Russia. And the stories are incredible. And the same with Bill Bowder's Red Notice. Bill Bowder also got into anti-corruption investigations. He's a capitalist American, but he went to Russia when the 90s, when it was opening up, all of the companies were selling their shares. And he explains exactly how the share system worked and the privatization of all these companies. And also he went to court because of exactly the same issues as Navalny. And it's absurd. The thing that happened with Bill Balder, so his lawyer Magnitsky, was actually jailed and died in prison. He was a young, really idealistic lawyer. He was still working in the system. It's like a Kafka novel. And it's really sad. But the thing with Magnitsky is they passed the Magnitsky Act in response to his death in the US. And Bill Bowder was responsible for pushing it because I think he felt very guilty that his lawyer basically died in custody. And this act cut off the bank accounts and the assets of several Russian oligarchs or people who are involved in the corruption that led to his death. And this really hurt. And in response, Putin, as a message to the US, he did something very strange. He stopped all American couples from adopting Russian orphans, which means all these families were expecting that they bring home these babies. These babies are in orphanages in Russia. And then that that really triggered a lot of protests in Russia. But did it make a difference? No, Putin's still in power. And it's the same with Navalny. Will it make a difference? Most commentators are saying, actually, he doesn't really have any real power. He doesn't have an army. And for most of the Russian revolutions, the majority of them that ever happened in the whole history of Russia, you needed an army and you needed somebody from inside the institution to change it. And all Navalny's got is social media and a blog. The question is, this is the first time that social media and the blog yeah. has been relevant. So will it make a difference? The protests are still going on without him being out there and instigating it, even though all the main leaders have been detained or have gone away. Those protests are still happening, so will it make a difference? I mean, I don't think so. I don't know. I mean, I'm curious to see if it will make a difference. Russia obviously has a long history in, in corruption. On my way here, I called my grandmother to ask her about what it was like in the Soviet Union. She's told me stories before, but I wanted to get the concrete details. And she told me that in 1976, they were on their way to Lithuania. They actually stopped off in Berlin, because this is where you entered the Soviet Union at Friedrichstraße. And she said that she had a bunch of jeans with her and that they were all confiscated at the border. So they went through your luggage and took things out. To which I asked her, I was like, how do they know those jeans weren't yours? And she was like, well, they were for a really tall young man. And they looked at me. My grandmother was quite short. And we're like, these are definitely not for her. And took them all. And Russia has kind of a super interesting history with fashion, specifically fashion from the 90s. Russia's obsession with Adidas tracksuits and where this comes from. 
a stereotypical Russian in like the most offensive stereotypical way we think of a guy in a tracksuit. And this is because back in the 1980s when the Soviet Union hosted the Olympics, Adidas sponsored the national team, and so they all got these tracksuits. So if you had access to these tracksuits, you know, you had influence, you somehow were in power because you could get these things. Obviously, at the same time, there was a huge surge in counterfeit tracksuits. And High Snobiety does an amazing series called Counterfeit, and they do an episode specifically on counterfeit in Russia nowadays, and they speak to a woman who used to back in the day, in the 90s, make counterfeit tracksuits. And she talks about how her husband had a genuine tracksuit. And if you went to a restaurant, first of all, you couldn't even go into the restaurant without bribing the host. So if you didn't bribe the host, they would just tell you that you had no free tables. And so you would say she, you bribed them like three ruble or something, and they let you in. And when her husband would wear his tracksuit bottoms with his Hugo Boss shoes, Sometimes they didn't even have to pay because people assumed that if you had these tracksuits, you were either a person of influence, you had power, or you were a gangster. And so people were scared of you. So as everything happens, now we're in the year 2021, and these tracksuits are still a massive deal. In fact, a lot of luxury brands, specifically streetwear brands, don't have stores in Russia because of things like it's too expensive, there's too much corruption, it's too complicated for them, basically. So you want to get Supreme streetwear in Russia, you have to go through resellers who sell it at a much higher price. So even today, streetwear, having access to streetwear in Russia means you have money, you have power, or you have the ability to go abroad and buy things. So it still holds this power status symbol. That's fascinating. Isn't it utterly fascinating? So it's just like going back to this idea that, yeah, corruption, I mean, obviously corruption is rampant everywhere, not just in Soviet Russia or Russia in general. Every government is corrupt. But Russia really has a long history of it. And when I was researching for this and I was learning more about Putin's life, I see a lot of similarities between Stalin's rise to power in the 1920s and Putin's rise to power. So Putin speaks fluent German and he was stationed in Dresden and in Germany as a member of the KGB. And he slithered his way into politics, as one would say. By association, the Yeltsin family appointed him to being prime minister, and from there he was able to make the jump to being president. Stalin similarly came into power, so he was appointed general secretary, which was a position that nobody really wanted. But in fact, what this allowed him to do was he was able to be in charge of appointing people to powers of position in local government. So he was able to station people who were loyal to him in positions of power he did things determine the agenda of meetings, take notes, so he was able to manipulate his way into the situations. After the death of Lenin, there was a power struggle within the Bolshevik party, and so there was three different camps, and then you kind of had Trotsky, who was just doing his own thing over here, vying for power. He had positioned himself in such a way that he internally had so much support that, long story short, he came up on top. Also because at the time, he had a policy that was very much focused on Russia, so very much the way Putin does as well. He's saying we need to focus on fixing things here and then we can export it elsewhere, whereas other people ran campaigns or sort of had the ideology of they were going to spread it out immediately, the Bolshevik Manifesto. The reason that this was successful is, is because in 1925, there was the failed revolution in Germany in saying there's a communist revolution in Italy as well, and they all failed. 
So people saw what had happened and been like, ah, if we try to export things outside, like if we don't look after ourselves first, it's going to happen what happened in Italy, fascism. So they were more drawn to Stalin's ideas. That's fascinating. And that goes back to this idea that in order to claim power in this country, you must be on the inside somewhere. Because the reason that Putin got put forward by Yeltsin, and even before that, he was appointed by Yeltsin family to the director of the FSB, which is the old the new KGB, because there was an anti-corruption investigation going into the Yeltsin family, and they just knew that you put a corrupt person in there who's on your side, who is already corrupt and can be further corrupted, and he's going to make it go away. So they're making, through this corrupt system, they're making all their friends and alliances and when you look at Putin's rise, he's risen up with all the same people that he was in Dresden with. Those people he was in Dresden with or St. Petersburg with and was all the people who were on the board of the bank. They were all the same people who are now the heads of Gazprom and stuff like that. So those connections that you make and those corruptions that you do together, they form bonds and you all rise together. There are some legitimately funny moments in Russian politics, though. I don't know if you guys have heard of Gary Kasparov. He is a opposition leader and trolls crashed one of his meetings. He was speaking at a political opposition event and they crashed his meeting with drone flying dildos. That's funny. There's another opposition, somebody else who was opposed to Putin. They got people to come and literally shit on his car yep. in Moscow during the day. So we're talking about all sorts of assaults on any type of opposition. And they don't even have to be Russian opposition. Brendan Kyle Hatcher was an American diplomat who was stationed in Russia. And he, for one reason or another, you can read up on it, upset the Russians. And so they released a very obviously faked sex tape of him. Not even a good one. In the shots, you see him in a hotel room. He walks out of frame then suddenly the image jumps, the room is dark, and there's a couple having sex. And it's like, and it works. Yeah, it works. Putin's propaganda also works. Mm -hmm. So in response to Navalny, he's just said, well, he's working for the CIA and all this kind of foreign agents, which is why I think Navalny had to come back and just throw his solidarity with Russia again. But that's the disinformation. It reminds me a little bit of what the Indian government is doing now about the farmers' protest. They're saying that this part of a Sikh conspiracy or a Maoist jihadi conspiracy that's against India, it really works. My mum was talking to a friend of hers who said, oh, those farmers, they're funded by Congress and stuff, which is the opposition in India. And my mum's like, they can't even win an election. You think they can organise one of the biggest protests? In it was funny, your hilarious moments are from this John Oliver video. And in this video, there are these famous pictures of Putin battling tigers and Putin coming out of the sea. He went diving and then he just happened to stumble upon these ancient vases and he comes out of the sea holding these old vases. And this girl is like, that's amazing. It's so incredible. And you're like, the press were there. Like, how is that possible? She was like, oh yeah, people dive all the time and they don't find anything. That must be a sign. I mean, I find nothing funnier than watching Russia Today. Russia Today is my favorite news channel forever. And I was almost laughing today when I was watching a discussion on France 24, where they had various different people on. One of them was obviously the advisor to the ambassador of Russia in France. And so the question put to her was, so Navalny has just got over two year sentence, like the maximum sentence for skipping a parole meeting from an old sentence because he's been arrested many times. Because the reason that he skipped it 
was because he literally had been in a coma <laughs> and poisoned by the Russian government. And the reason we know that actually it was the Russian government is because Navalny called up a bunch of people that he thought had poisoned him and tried to ask them, you know, what happened. And by the end of this long list, he was like, okay, I'm just going to pretend I'm somebody's superior. So they've got it all on record. So he pretended that he was this guy's superior. And he asked him all the details of the Navalny poisoning and what went wrong. And the guy admitted to doing it and that he had poisoned, they had put the poison in his underpants. And so Navalny, in his funny way, says, Putin's going to go down in history as the poisoner of Navalny's underpants, which I think is quite funny. It's, it's such a good way, humor, mm -hmm. to attack anything, because once you don't take anything seriously, you're already bringing it down. This advisor was asked this question, like, isn't that a bit extreme? He was in a coma, and he couldn't make his parole meeting, and now he's just been charged... And she said, no, on the contrary, it shows that Russia abides by the rule of law because he broke the law by not turning up to his parole meeting. She was just so straight about it. And I was like, wow, so brilliant. I don't know how she can do her job or keep straight face or sleep at night, but amazing. She said another very interesting thing, because this is about the international response to this, which is also quite important. So... In that court hearing, which was just over a parole hearing, actually, because that's all they could do, a lot of diplomats were there, which is why they were all annoyed, because a lot of diplomats were there, and they were saying, well, actually, it's none of your business. This is a totally internal matter that's got nothing to do with diplomacy, because Putin doesn't see him as an opposition person at all, or the official state doesn't recognize him as that. He's not being given any chance to do any interviews on state Russian TV. The whole narrative is controlled by the state. But Navalny himself has said, this is what you can do as the international community. He's given specifically a list of 35 names that people should sanction those individuals with, along with loads of evidence that were involved in his poisoning. And like the Magnitsky case showed, is quite effective because Russia is a massive power. Like, what can we do? Yeah, so if we disappear within a week, y'all know why. On that note, here are our three things you can do to be a better person. Thing one, take a leaf out of Navalny's book. If there's something you really care about or something that's making you angry or some injustice that you're facing, no human is too small to make a difference. So start a revolution. Navalny did. Number two, be brave. I think we've seen an astounding amount of courage and integrity and follow through from a man who's willing to give up his life for his principles. And that's really incredible. And think three is Navalny's blog is all full of documents and facts. So do your homework, do your research, know your facts, subscribe to this podcast, subscribe to our newsletter, and we'll send you the facts. On that note, he does verify or try to verify as much as possible. And in our newsletter, we link to all the sources that we have here. Thank you for listening. Until next week, goodbye. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and share it with your friends. And if you like, you can share your internet obsessions with us. Tweet us at the underscore miss underscore informed or follow us on Instagram at the underscore miss underscore informed. You can also send us an email at misinformed.podcast at gmail.com. You can also listen and subscribe via YouTube. For news about the show or upcoming events and links to all our sources, references and other geeky inspiration, subscribe to our newsletter. You can find the link via our Instagram. We are an independent, non-profit podcast. 
If you would like to show us some love, you can make a one-off donation via our SoundCloud or support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash misinformed. Thank you for listening. Until next time, goodbye.